a monthly group at Spirit Rock. Always interesting to come. When you do something once a month, you realize how much happens in a month. It's like a world of difference. The last time I was here, you know, uh, the playoffs hadn't started. No, that's not an important thing. Christmas, no. I know something, I know something. Actually, the yeah, last time I was here, I was... Do you remember the last time I was here? Yeah. It was PTSD, let's just put it that way. And you know what the T stands for, so... Um, but uh, that's all behind us now. Everything is unfolding as causes and conditions have brought about and we are in total acceptance or we're trying to dissociate as much as possible practicing leaving our bodies anybody watch the OA? Uh, you know at first I thought it was about Overeaters Anonymous but uh, uh, you've been watching that? they have TV out here for you guys? Oh, yeah, right. That goes anywhere. It's a Netflix show. Uh, yeah. It's got some Dharma in it, though. It's really... Yeah, well, everything is Dharma, after all. Right there. Every, it's impermanent, for one thing. It's, uh, but, yeah, it's speaking of leaving bodies, it's pretty strange. Uh, not that I have time to watch television. And anyway, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't watch tel- I don't own a television. I wouldn't even know what a television was. Okay, I think that I broke several precepts there. But uh, now sometimes I feel like, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't say I'm a Buddhist, actually. I just say I'm a Buddhist practitioner. And I teach Buddhist meditation practice. But, you know, that's the type of thing people are like, oh, well, you know, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't watch television. I'm like... Oh, you're really serious. So, pepperoni pizza for dinner. So right away I can't be a Buddhist, you know. And it wasn't gluten-free, so I'm out of the club. Okay. Um, I'm going to not go crazy tonight. Uh, I think I'm going to give a good Dharma talk too. But you never know. That's part of the Dharma talk, actually. You never know. <laughs> that's, the, that's like, maybe we'll call that, the, maybe that'll be the title of the Dharma talk. The Dharma talk is, you never know what the Dharma talk is going to be. But um, what we do here is we sit for about a half hour. Uh, and I'll be guiding some of that, trying to get you get, get you started. Um, and then um, I guess I take questions, and then we have a break, and then I give a talk. That's what we usually do. So we might do that tonight. Uh, I don't know. It's uncertain. Um, but... Uh, it's just always interesting, you know, uh, coming out here. I come from Berkeley, and 
And I've been coming out here for... Uh, the first time I taught out here was in the early 2000s. So, um, you know, maybe 15 years. And the traffic's gotten worse over that time. <laughs> Just FYI, in case you didn't notice. Um, but it's always interesting to notice your energy when you're driving to a place to practice meditation. You know, and... Uh, and, you know, to practice or to teach um, and to just notice it, somehow it puts everything in relief a little bit like okay when I get there I can be spiritual <laughs> but right now this is unacceptable you know <laughs> these people are pissing me off you know and you just kind of go oh wow really is that is that how it works? I, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that's what it, I read in the book, whatever book it was. Just didn't say that. Um, so, uh, on the other hand, there's always just a sweetness coming onto this land. Uh, it's a really wonderful place. And when you come up in, and the first parking lot on the right tells you how many people are up the hill on retreat. And that, just that in itself is a kind of inspiration. Like, all right, people are practicing. People are doing intensive practice. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have this place as refuge. Um, get us started. And uh, see how we do tonight. Settling into your posture. You're not experienced at meditating, just to make sure that you're very stable. So if you're sitting in a chair, having both feet on the ground, if you're on the floor, making contact with the floor with your knees and your butt. Something. Your cushion. And noticing the alignment of your body. So if you, if you particularly if you tip forward, you will put stress, stress on the back. So you want to Align the head and shoulders and spine and hips. So you can kind of feel it when you get in that alignment because it puts all the weight, all the weight is held by the by the spine and travels right down into your butt. There's no stress or tension on the back or the shoulders. That's kind of the sweet spot, if you can find that. Part of practice is actually coming back to the center in your posture, as well as coming back to the center in your mind and your attention. 
Once you have that sense of balance and alignment, relaxing some of the key points in the body, relax the jaw. It's a place where we can hold tension when we clench the jaw. Softening the belly. So saying, saying relax a part of the body just means that you take your attention there and see if there's some way that you are holding tension and see if you can find the release. Not always possible, so... Struggle with that, just see if there's a, a way to soften or relax. And in this movement of towards relaxation and softening, there's an opening to the whole body sensation, the feeling of being in a body the feeling of sitting here? What are the sensations that you can observe? The points of sensation in the body, like in the hands or the feet, where that stands out to just notice that. And also to have kind of a global sense of the whole body sitting. Most interesting things about meditation is to feel your body because we mostly ignore it unless there's something special like eating or sex or exercising that's calls our attention to the body and the senses. Otherwise, we just kind of treat it like something that should just do our business for us. What we discover is that the body is filled with sensations all the time. This is life. And we can see that different parts of the body have different sensations. There isn't just one feeling in the body. This is one of the things that points to the not-self element of the body. The body isn't one thing. body itself doesn't have an individual identity. It's made up of components come together temporarily to function in certain ways. 
we think this is my body. But the Buddha says that's it's the wrong way to think of it. He says if something belongs to you, you can control it. Okay, well, there's some things I can control about my body. I can move it around. I can eat, put food in it. Activate it in different ways. But most of the things that my body does, I don't control. Growing, digesting. Growing cells. Cleaning itself out. Taking air from the lungs into the blood. Creating hormones. The whole life of the body is so complex. We could never run it on our own much less create it. Call it mine is a, a real act of hubris. This is not my body. Well, I feel my body I still call it mine. This is a convenience. But knowing that it, it's not really that. In the same way, the mind is not mine. But again, I can use it. I have some agency. This practice is largely about training the mind, training the attention. We use awareness of the body because it is easy to feel. Sensations are always there. The breath is constantly moving.
So let your mind come to rest on the sensations of breath. Feel the breath at the nostrils. Air comes in and out. Follow the movement of the belly rising and falling. You can make a soft mental note with the breath in, out, following the breath at the nostrils or rising, falling, if you're following the breath at the belly. Whenever you notice the mind has wandered, Acknowledge that. Gently come back. Back to the sensations of breath. Not trying to control the mind or the body. Important to make this distinction. We're observing our experience. Even if it's unpleasant or there's a lot of thoughts, you don't like the way your body feels. We keep observing the experience. We observe our reactions. We try to stay engaged with the experience rather than trying to create a special experience. That's what the addict mind does. Most meditators do that at least when they start. How do you follow the meditation instructions without trying to control the results? What we do is we Turn the results over. Just show up. Simple instructions to observe, to feel the breath, 
Notice when the mind isn't on the breath. Notice where it is. Notice what happens. You like. Back. Big project. Not complicated. Actually quite simple. We tend to make it complicated. We try to figure it out. It doesn't help to figure it out. The many facts that frustrate us as meditators. Thinking can't solve the riddle of practice.
Okay, so um, I'd like to see if there are any practice questions. Just uh, you're having challenges in practice, or just uh, any clarity you'd like to get around any any experiences as you're meditating. So anyone, anytime. We're going to use the microphone for the benefit of all beings. Yeah, you were saying something about um, when we were saying this is my body yeah. and you and you're getting at that um, part or in something about um, and the mind thing kind of separation or together type of thing I, was, I didn't catch all of that yeah I, I kind of uh, went off there uh, it was an accident um, I it's that that was more like something I would uh, would be in a Dharma talk than a guided meditation, but uh, I, you know, I do kind of just follow uh, what emerges emerges as I'm sitting. So just this idea that we are not in control of our bodies, you know, that we don't, and so when we think it's my body. We, but we realize we don't really control it. So that's one of the ways that the Buddha kind of undermines the idea of self, of a separate identity, uh, and that we own that we own our minds, that our our mind belongs to us, or our body belongs to us because we don't control them. And he and he says, if you own something, you can control it. Um, and and clearly, you know, we can do things with our minds and with our bodies, but we don't control them. If they, you know, if I had control of my body, I'd have more hair, first of all, uh, and I'd be a little slimmer and better looking, and I wouldn't need glasses, you know, etc. Right? You wouldn't get sick and you wouldn't die. Maybe unless you wanted to die, I guess. Then you'd say, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you could just go, okay? I think I've had enough. I'm done now. And then you could just turn your body off. I mean, maybe it would be nice. I don't know. But and so this kind of is kind of undermining our sense of control and ego and and who I am, uh, and to see that wow. It's hard to even... I mean, the Buddha doesn't say there is no self. He just points to all the things that are not self. And so that, the very question, well, who am I or what am I? You know, uh, it's, it's sort of unanswerable. Um, but I think what's important is to kind of let go of the idea that this is my show here. You know, this is about me and see that it's more like I'm a participant in this show. That, and when I say I am, I, again, it's like when I really ask myself, well, what am I talking about? I don't know. You know, it's like um, this 
aspect of consciousness that thinks and remembers and plans and feels as if it's a self has a role in what happens to this mind-body. But it's not in control. And even that, I think, is frustrating. In a way, it would be easier, you know, if, if it was step three and you said, I turn my will in my life and my body over the care of God, then I wouldn't have to do anything, you know. Oh, that would be easy. I just, I stop it. You know, God's, you know, I'm just a puppet. Or a zombie or whatever. So, no, I have to do stuff. I have to participate. But I don't get to be in control. How annoying is that? You know. That's the, the paradox of, of this existence. And it's, you know, very much an aspect of the paradox of Dharma, you know, of, of, uh, you know, right, like, right at the middle of practice is effort. How do I make effort without trying to control? That's what the steps are actually pointing to, certainly what step three is pointing to. I have to be fully engaged and do my part and I don't get to have it my way. And then I have to deal with how I feel about that. And so if I handle all that well, (laughs) or wisely, let's say, I get to not suffer as much. That's the deal. That's the deal you sign up for. I'm willing to do my best and not expect any results. I get to not suffer as much. Boy, he's got a follow-up. Now I'm in trouble. Go ahead. Because I thought that was such a perfect answer. That, that um, explained it a lot to me. Okay, um, good. You know, at the very beginning, though, you said if I had control, I, I would, you know, control how, you know, having hair, or I'd be thinner, yeah. or I would do so this. So you have that. hair, so maybe you are in control. And, yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, on certain things I am. And uh-huh, that's yeah, part that's of the right. paradox we're not talking about. helpless. We're powerless, but anyway, what? I didn't. No, hear I was that. just saying. You know, the way you began what you were saying, and saying, yeah. you know, I can, I, I would be thinner, or I would do yeah. this, like that, and those are things that we do have control over. But you went on to explain it, and you know, that paradox thing you're talking about that I got to think about some more. But, oh. but so the, I should have just quit when I was ahead, like this. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. Just brought up another thought. That's yeah, all. good. Well, that's the Dharma is rich and varied. And so seemingly, I don't, it's not endless exactly, but there's someone over here too. So I, I'm fairly new to this practice and um, concentrating on body sensations and my breath, and then my mind wanders and uh-huh. come back. Is That's the, not because you're new to the practice, by the way. <laughs> Is the is there a point at which thoughts come back into the practice, or are they always being or set uh-huh. aside, or however one uh-huh. thinks of it? I mean, is there a time when, like, you graduate to where, okay, now you're allowed to think? 
No, it's a good question. Um, and someone asked me a similar question by email today. Um, uh, I mean, certainly, I don't think thoughts ever, you know, are not in in our practice. But in terms of the intentionality around it, is that you're kind of getting at? Yeah. Um, It's kind of like we have to first learn how not to think before we can think intentionally, I guess is the sort of the idea. So, and, and we have, what we, I think what, what's really important to become aware of is not just that you're thinking, but what quality of the thought is and it and kind of and the way I know that is by the way I feel because if I'm thinking a thought of of grasping or aversion kind of the you know those the unskillful thoughts then my body and my emotions and or my emotions somehow the, there's a feeling that goes with them that's kind of toxic and when I if I if you practice and stay uh, conscious of that, as you're, so not just, oh, I'm thinking, but kind of tune in, okay, how does it feel when I'm thinking? As you come back to your breath, kind of as you're like floating back to your body, like, okay, how do I feel now as I come back now to the present moment and out? Oh, that's how that feels. And then I settle again. And after a while, you get to know that feeling so that then... When there's intentional thought that might be like creative or uh, or um, investigative, that is kind of investigating a spiritual question, then you're feeling as you're doing that, you're feeling okay. There, this isn't generating dukkha. You know, this isn't generating suffering or a toxic feeling as I'm thinking. That's one of the ways that you know that it's not unskillful. You know, it's okay. Uh, uh, there's a purpose in this. So the one of the suttas, the sutta that's called removing distracting thoughts. <laughs> a few of the suttas have a more explicit title, and one that's so you know attractive. Oh, I want to re- read this sutta. Uh, the, at the end of that sutta, the Buddha gives five different strategies for removing distracting thoughts. He says that one who does this becomes the master of the courses of thought. And it's an intriguing phrase to me, the master of the courses of thought. And the way I understand that is that becoming the master of the courses of thought means that your thoughts are all intentional, that you are not caught up in the you know, spacing out or reactivity, you know, getting carried away with your own ego or your anger or your grasping, that all of your thoughts are thought for, a, there's a purpose behind each of them. Um, I'm, I 
you know, I don't know anybody who is the master of the courses of their thought, as far, as far as I know. Maybe there's a few people. Maybe I've encountered one or two, but I, I'm not one of those people. I'll, you know, if, um, but certainly I've had experiences of, you know, intentional thought, as, as have we all, right? Um, and so it's more, uh, I would say, that we need to start to, we, we want to get to the place where we really distinguish the difference and that we understand that there is a difference and that we are aware enough that we kind of catch, catch it to some extent. Now, um, if you sit down to meditate with an intention to think about something, you have to be very careful, basically. And, you know, most of what uh, Western Buddhist teachers teach is how to let go of thoughts because we are so habituated to think all the time. So it really, it takes a while before uh, we get to a place where that kind of uh, tends to be useful, I'd say. Uh, so, but, but uh, finally, I will say that there are traditional questions like who am I or what is self or um, exploring the nature of uh, suffering or the nature of impermanence uh, that's, that can be done through intentional thought. And also we do certain practices like loving kindness. Meditation is a very intentional kind of thought. So, yeah, there's a place. <laughs> so, uh, as usual, my answers are way too long. Um, so let's take a little break and uh, come back in about 10 minutes. I brought along some of my workbooks tonight, so those are only available online and wherever I am. <laughs> and when, when you get them from me, they only cost $10, which is a deal. This is uh, always an, you know, it's an interesting time of year. It's um, you know, a time of transition. One friend of mine, uh, her positive way of looking at uh, the winter solstice is that it's the beginning of the sun coming back, which, of course, that's a traditional view of it, but she specifically was saying, from here on, the days keep getting longer. And uh, even when we don't uh, detect it, when we haven't quite noticed it. Um, but of course, it's also kind of a, because of the way we have the calendar uh, in the West, um, we consider it the beginning of something. Of course, that's just a concept. Um, you know, not the, there's no beginning or end of the, the, I mean, at least, you know, not in the course of a year, the beginning and the end of the earth going around the sun. It just keeps going, um, in case you haven't noticed. Um, but it's still a good time for reflection, I think. And, um, you know, and it's a time when, you know, a lot of people uh, begin their recovery. You know, uh, I don't know if there's statistics on this, but I imagine a lot of people have their recovery date 
in January or you know, late. I, I met, I ran into someone, I guess it was when I was in Providence, Rhode Island, before Christmas, who's, who's uh, sober anniversary was New Year's Eve. That was interesting. <laughs> Usually it's the day after, right? So he was getting a head start, I guess, on the whole thing. But um, I often teach a course, which I'm doing this year, um, at St. Mary's College. Uh, and uh, in January, they have what they call Jan term or January term, where students just take one class for uh, four weeks, uh, four days a week, two and a half hours a day. And I teach the, I, the class I teach there is called Introduction to Buddhism. I used to call it What is Buddhism? But then... I found like by the end of the first day I'd sort of explained what Buddhism was and I felt like, okay, well that, we got to fill up the next four weeks so I'm, I maybe ought to give it a broader title. It doesn't... Um, so in this introduction we, to Buddhism, we meditate every day in class and they read a couple of uh, Buddhist books and uh, I give them kind of a re- course reader with some articles and essays and things, extracts from books. We, we look at some suttas, which confuse the heck out of them, uh, which is fun. Uh, and, um, and then they, each day, they have to write about their meditation experience. And this is actually a really interesting thing to read, um, to have people write down what happened in their meditation that day. Uh, and I have, I think I have 28 students this year. Um, so every day, I, four days a week, I get you know a stack of people telling me what their meditation was like. So this was the first week, and it's uh, it's really interesting to see uh, to see that what 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 they say. And, and I, I ask them to be very specific, very detailed. They, they usually, I just ask for a page, but like, tell me like, you know, don't, don't just sort of be general about it. You know, tell me what's going on that you're experiencing in your body, in your mind. Um, I'm actually going to bring them out here on Monday. That'll be our field trip to come to Spirit Rock, uh, which is really a joy. You know, and, and it's, a, it's, it's such a joy to be able to introduce this practice to, to young people. And, and it's also interesting, I've been teaching it for 15 years. There's been a couple of years when I didn't teach it, but um, meditation and mindfulness are so much better, like more exposed now. In 2002, when I first taught the course, a few of the students had practiced meditation before. Now many of them raise their hand the first day when I say who's meditated. And it might just mean they've been to a yoga class, but still, they, you know, they're familiar with the term mindfulness. It's much more, so that, that's, it's an interesting thing that I'm getting to kind of track the evolution of, uh, of um, cultural awareness of this practice. Um, the other thing, I'm sure there must be some school teachers here. One of the thing that's, things that's strange about teaching is that the students stay the same age year after year. 
like they don't seem to age, right? <laughs> they just like they get. To, it's like, and then they disappear, and then they're just another group. They're all this. Uh, yeah, so, and you know, meanwhile, you know, I'm aging. So it's like, the heck, it's like they are Dorian Gray, and I am the portrait. <laughs> Not a bad, is it? That wasn't a bad. Uh, that just kind of came right out. Um, so, one of the things that's very evident in seeing a whole group of beginners and what they're experiencing is the tendency to want to control your experience in meditation. And, in fact, to think that you are supposed to control your experience in meditation. Uh, some people think that if, they, if their meditation isn't going the way they think it should be going, that it must be their fault, that they're doing it wrong, or that they need more information about how to do it when they when the teacher explains it, then they'll get control. And it's something, I've noticed this for a long time. I mean, it certainly is part of my practice, part of my experience, was that initially expectation that I was going to control my experience. And certainly when when I saw that how hard it was, still having a strong wish to control it. And I can remember my early retreats going into interviews with Jack Cornfield and, and describing what was happening and sort of asking for help on basically how to m- make it go right and having him say, well, can you just pay attention to that experience? And my sense was, first of all, that's really annoying. And second of all, why are you holding out on me? You know, what do I have to do to get the real teaching, the one that explains how I control this thing, how I make the meditation be like the way I know it's supposed to be because I've read the books. And I know it's supposed to be like really peaceful, it's supposed to get all these insights, uh, you know, there's just supposed to be energy, and you know, there's probably there's all there's a lot of stuff I'm missing here. So come on, I paid my money. You know, do I have to leave extra Donna for this? How do I get it? <laughs> you know, and then you go if you go back and you you know you know you you reread the meditation instructions, right? Because because there's the meditation instructions, and then there's the way we hear the meditation instructions. The instruction is, pay attention to your, bring your attention to your breath. And when your mind wanders, notice that. And then bring your attention back to the breath. So that's what the teacher is saying. And what we're hearing is, you're supposed to pay attention to your breath. You're not supposed to be thinking why are you thinking? Stop that. Don't you know? what? You, I, I told you, stop thinking. Jeez. Are you not listening to me? You know. So that's what we hear, right? 
I mean, that must be what we hear because what's the question that everyone asks when they and what do they say when they're learning meditation? Well, I keep thinking so much. I can't stop my thinking. And then some people think that they are especially thinker, thinkful. You know. Now, I'm one of those people, they'll say. I'm one of those people who's thinking all the time. And so, you know, I hear that and I go, so you're suggesting that I'm one of those people who doesn't think a lot. Are you saying, like, you're just so smart and I'm just so... If, I were, if, if you were dumb like me, that you'd be able to meditate better because I don't think. That's why I'm such a good meditator. So it really takes a while, right, before it gets through. I'm not really supposed to... It, the instruction never said, stop thinking. It never said that. Yeah. It never said, you shouldn't be thinking. It says, when you notice that you're thinking, then come back to your breath. It doesn't say, suppress your thought. It doesn't say, cling to that breath for dear life. You know, just let your mind, totally, that's all there is in the world is your breath. Nothing else. If you let anything else in, you've blown it. You know, it doesn't say that. And yet we go, oh, why am I such a bad meditator? Can't stop thinking. And then, okay, next problem. (laughs) I keep falling asleep when I'm meditating. You know, I'm doing, going along, I'm doing fine, and all of a sudden, I'm falling asleep. How do I stay awake when I'm meditating? Because, you know, I know I'm not supposed to be falling asleep. Because you, know, you said, you know, sit and pay attention, and, you know, didn't you say something about, like, don't fall asleep? No, I, I didn't say that. Well, that's one of the hindrances, though, right? That's true. It's one of the hindrances. Okay, then I'm not supposed to do it, right? Mm. You know, the, there's five hindrances. Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. Now, do you think you're... Well, people get this one too. Like, I'm not supposed... If I'm not supposed to have any desires, well, how am I going to, like, feed myself? <laughs> it says... You know, that's a, the desire, the hindrance of desire. It says desire is the cause of suffering. So I'm supposed to not have any desires, right? Uh, well, not exactly. But what's interesting, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just put that one aside because I see a whole story that goes off there. And it'll probably come back, but I want to get back to this. What, what I'm really trying to get at is the feeling that we have to control, that we are supposed to control our meditation. And it kind of goes back to the first question tonight. And the way this relates as well to addiction, right? Because addiction is fundamentally uh, a, a behavior of control or an attempt to control, an attempt to control how we feel. You know, I want to feel good, so I get intoxicated. I don't want to feel bad, 
so I get intoxicated. You know, I want to feel this way. I want to control how I feel. And this is, you know, for addicts, of course, this becomes, uh, you know, an overriding, overpowering behavior. More than a habit, right? That's why it's called an addiction. Uh, But it's not, uh, you know, solely the um, behavior of addicts. It's it's a very human thing to do, to try to control things. And once more, we're put in this challenging place that um, we, doing nothing is not an alternative. That doesn't work. You know, turning it all over, <laughs> you know, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, I had a student today, we met in small, I had small groups come to my office today and, and, and she's like um, talking about her feeling that she's got to control stuff. And, uh, and she didn't, you know, I, I, had, I had to kind of get her to drill down you know, she was talking about having anxiety. I was like, okay, what's the anxiety about? Well, or, or she's, I'm very routine. I have, I have to follow a routine. I said, well, why do you have to follow a routine? Well, and of course, I got her to see that this was coming out of fear that, and that it was trying to, that, that need to have a perfect routine was trying to control things and that that was out of fear of not being in control. And... And then to try to let her know that the problem isn't really that you're not in control. Because you're not. So, uh, you know, you're going to have to figure out how to live with that. The problem is that you're afraid of not being in control. And so what you need to do is learn to be with that feeling and you know where we're trying to get to is to let go but that's not we can't start there you know okay just let go of your fear what where is it where's the switch where i turn that it releases again that turns into control right so the starting point and this is again one of those kind of counterintuitive things but it's like essence of dharma essence of mindfulness, the starting point is go to the experience. Go, try to find the root of the experience, which in this case is fear or anxiety, and sit with that. Get to know that. That's how you defeat the enemy. <laughs> That's not too uh, violent an image, but this is, you know, this is what the Buddha does with with uh, all the challenges, Mara, the tempter, the one who's always trying to throw him off, what the Buddha does is he turns and says, I see you, I see you. And the, just in the seeing, that is, he's, he's, he's you know, expressing the fact 
that he's aware of this, but he's not afraid of it. It's okay. You can say this stuff to me. You know, you can show up and try to scare me. I'm not afraid of you. You know, the night of his awakening, Mara comes with all these, the arrows. You know, first he comes with his armies, and then he comes with his, the daughters that try to seduce the Buddha. So it's, it comes with, with anger, with fear, with lust. And the Buddha, doesn't, the Buddha doesn't fight with that. He doesn't get up off the cushion and say, okay, bring it on, Mara. He sits, and the, the image is that all these things, it, the power of his presence, his mindfulness, his love, turns all these arrows into flowers, you know, that fall at his feet. And, and, and all, he defeats the armies of Mara through being fearless, through letting them say, bring it on, because they're not real, you know. They're not, they're not, they only have the power that we give them. And of course, uh, we're, we're so, uh, you know, conditioned to not look at what is difficult, what is uncomfortable, what, is, what frightens us. We, you know, it's like, keep that, keep that at bay. You know, keep the routine really tight or follow my meditation instructions like this. Just do it exactly, you know, do it right. You know, try to, you know, that, that's how we, we kind of try to hold it together. You know, that the idea that, you know, just don't try to hold it together. Just, like, let it be what it is. Let those feelings come. Let this turn and, turn and face, be with it. Um, that in itself is frightening. But once we are able to do that, once we, we see that really, that, there's no other way out. It's the, you know, it's the only way out is through that kind of concept. We see, okay, once we surrender... back to step one, seeing our powerlessness. I'm not in control. Now what? You know, the steps which sound more religious, we're all, well, come to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, saying one way to understand that is that we come to believe that there we have the capacity to be with these experiences, this experience of craving, if it's our addiction, this experience of fear, if it's our wish to control, that we actually can be with that. The power that the Dharma offers is the power of mindfulness, the power of awareness. And the whole power of the, the Eightfold Path that involves you know, wisdom and intention, it, a wise action, taking the right, next right action, the power of effort, uh, concentration. Uh, these things allow us then to engage with these monsters, with, them, with Mara, with our fears, and to be with them. And then they do, and sometimes there is that feeling like, oh, what was I so afraid of? You know? And I was talking to these kids today about being with anxiety as energy. You know, it's only... You know, what we name things has to do with how we relate to them. When we give it a scary name, oh, it's, you know, it's uh, trauma. I mean, not that these things aren't real, but, you know, just the words. It's anxiety. I'm having a panic attack. 
and I, and I don't mean to imply that these things aren't real things that happen, but that at times it's possible to transmute or transform these things, this is kind of the tantra of Vipassana, <laughs> into energy. Just by when we let go of the name and the idea that things should be a certain way, and that there's a danger in them being the way they are, or that they, sh- you know, it's not manageable. But that if we say, okay, maybe this is manageable. Maybe I can be with this. What happens if I breathe and allow this? You know, Jack Cornfield will say, no one ever died of restlessness. You know, it's like you know, you can be sitting. It's like I have to move. I have to get up. I've got to go. It's like what? What happens if I don't? You know, you know, and, and I talk about restlessness. I mean, what is restlessness? It's kind of low-level anxiety, basically. And when we're sitting, and and you know, we're sitting, and it's like, oh, this is like, I just antsy, whatever you, you know. When you when you see it as, oh, wait, let me just feel this. Because the problem, once again, is so, so this, that subtle thing. The problem isn't the thing, it's our relationship to the thing. It's how we view the thing. It's, that, it's the aversion. It's like, it's the aversion, stupid. You know, it's, if we were going to turn it into a, you know, whatever, hashtag. Um, I have to try that one. Um, and so one of the things that this practice does is it helps us to deconstruct that experience and see that it's not, there isn't this solid thing that's uh, just overwhelming called anxiety or let's work with something simpler like restlessness, that there's this experience but then there's this pushback and there's the fear of it or that not liking it, and we call it aversion. Aversion is such a sort of sanitary word, it doesn't quite capture it. But, then, but when we, as our mind becomes a little more clear, if we can distinguish that, I think the main way we distinguish it, again, is in the body. The tension in the body in relation to our experience is the manifestation of the aversion, which is why the meditation teacher will say, relax that, soften the belly. This is a great instruction that uh, Ajahn Amaro gives in his book Silent Rain, where he talks about how when when we're agitated, there's something going on, and we notice it in the mind, and we kind of let it go as a thought, it remains in the body. It has kind of an afterlife in the body. And if we don't see that, the tension held in the body, then what happens is that energy of the feeling generates another thought that becomes another problem and you create this cycle. Right? And so dropping into the body and releasing the tension in the body then allows that cycle to be broken. The 
that tension is this expression of aversion or fear of the experience. And so letting go of it, it feels like it's protecting us. That's why our bodies get tense, right, with anxiety. It's a, it's a primal way of preparing for conflict. Okay, I'm in danger, so that my muscles contract, right? I get tight. But when you're meditating and that happens, it, it, there's nothing <laughs> to protect yourself from. And in fact, it has this reverse effect of creating more problem. And so we have to break through this fear and this aversion in the mind to go into it and say, I can feel this. I will, it will not kill me. I can allow it to come through. So we, we change our relationship to the experience cognitively by letting go of the, of the label of, of some, uh, of, that it's something bad and we shift into a, a nonverbal experience of it. What's the visceral experience? And we... It was going so well right up till then. <laughs> I had it, but it, I put it aside, the next thought, for a second. And I should never have done that. So this, uh, the, uh, this um, calming, though, has the double effect. Uh, this letting go of the tension has the double effect, then, of, bring, of moving us right in the opposite direction. So here we are with tension and... and uh, anxiety, then by letting go of the fear of the anxiety and softening the body, it actually allows the anxiety to calm too. Because uh, the, the, the tension is a trigger for the mind, a trigger for fear in the mind. The relaxation is a trigger for calm in the mind. So one of the things that Rick Hansen says in his book, uh, Buddha's Brain, is that when you relax the jaw, it triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. That that actually has a grounding and calming effect on the whole body. So there are these points of tension in the body that we hold, that when we release them, they actually have a whole uh, systemic effect. And it's one of the things that... If you watch, this is, I think, why a lot of baseball players chew stuff when they're playing. And I, th- I think it's also, uh, unconsciously, I don't think they know that that's what happens. But, and I am very, I'm, begin, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a theory here that also, this is why, is how many people watch the Warriors? Steph Curry's famous mouth guard, that he walks around chewing half the time. People are like, so gross, man. He's, I just put that thing back in your mouth, you know. But he's chewing on his mouth guard all the time. Is that stress or is it a release of stress, right? Is he keeping his jaw loose? And Because if you watch 
great athletes like Steph Curry or great baseball players, they are very relaxed in the way they approach the game. They don't go in there like, because you know, they know like that's going to be counterproductive. And you know, you're, you're doing this incredibly complicated, difficult task in front of millions of people and you're getting paid millions of dollars and people expect results, you know? And you just go, huh, oh, I missed that three, that's okay. What? You know, most of us would be, oh my God, I missed the three-point shot, take me out of the game, coach. So this capacity to, to release, to relax, is actually, you know, a really um, tremendous um, tremendous tool for, ac- for any action. And it's, it's a third step, you know? I mean, you do your best, you practice for years and years, you, you know, you get in shape, you train, you practice, then you go out and you perform. And when you take the shot, after it's out of your hands, it's out of your control, you know? Uh, what a letting go. So the other piece, <laughs> that is to say, the other piece besides the... So uh, I want to bring it back to how we, how we manage this process of letting go. That there's this... Um, the practice element of it, which is coming into the body, seeing the tension, seeing the fear as a physical manifestation and releasing that, which takes faith, by the way, because you have to believe that it's going to be okay, that you can be with this feeling, that you don't have to control it. And actually, by the way, you're not really controlling it. You just thought you were. But anyway, you don't have to control it, so relax. So that's like the practice element of it, like breathing into the belly, releasing. And then the dharma element, which is right view. So this, there's a, this cognitive or you know, intellectual part of it, of practice, is knowing that everything is impermanent. So if there's a strong feeling that's unpleasant, that I don't like, I can allow myself to feel it. One of the things that helps me to be able to feel it is that I know it's going to pass. So that's the Dharma perspective, right? That's right view. So this is the kind of movement from the typical human and especially addictive way of approaching meditation and life, of trying to control and having expectations, being in conflict with the way things are, uh, being in conflict with ourselves for not controlling well enough. Uh, You know, we have to find a way out of that. That's dukkha. That's right there. Now we're looking at how the Four Noble Truths, you know, suffering and how suffering is created. We have to find a way out of that. This is like one way of looking at that process. This turning towards, this physical, actual engagement, that first foundation of mindfulness, being in the body, letting myself feel it, 
because I trust in the process, I'm turning it over to the power of mindfulness, the power of the practice, and with wisdom that it's going to be okay, that it's going to pass. And, and, and in fact, further, when we understand the law of karma, we understand that certain actions bring certain results. This is the other like dharmic element to it, right? And once we study this stuff, and we, the way we study it is by watching our own mind and body, that's one of the ways, as well as watching other people's minds and bodies, we start to see, oh, my way of operating, the cause and effect, the way that I thought that way things worked, I control things, then I get the results I want. That turned out not to work. So I guess karma doesn't work the way I thought it did. So how does it work? Well, that's what the Buddha taught. That's what the Eightfold Path is, is a system for being in flow with karma or being in harmony with the law of karma. Here's what you're supposed to do. Have right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Those are the things that I'm supposed to do, which is, I've been describing all of those things in broader terms, in terms of this practice. So, you know, just to come back to this starting point of this habitual way of looking at practice, of, oh, I'm supposed to do this. And if it's not, you know, if I'm having unpleasant experiences like a lot of thoughts, or I'm sleepy, or I'm restless, or there's desires coming up, or how do I get rid of those? You know, how do I fix that? But that's just, that's the wrong question. You know? it's, uh, the question really is, can I be with that? You know? And if you can't, that's a good thing to investigate too. Why can't I be with that? It's, it's uh, you know, an, another way of looking at this is that we have this tendency, it's obviously also a recovery concept, it's like look out there for the answers. You know, look out there to blame. Or, you know, and or, or, but even when we look in here, like look at blaming ourselves, that's, that's not the point. Right? It's this, that mindfulness is such a simple thing that we forget what we're supposed to do. You know? It's like, no, just, just be with that. Yeah. So um, I didn't use up all the time. So if there are any thoughts, um, anyone wants to any anything say, ask. I just want to say one thing, Kevin. I knew you couldn't get through a talk without talking about the warriors. Oh, yeah, thank you. Good. Well, it's the season. I'm, but look, I'm coming out here on Monday night. So I'm not going to be watching them play the Cavaliers. You see, that's, that is letting go. Well, you see, 
I'd rather not watch it in, because I want, if they lose, I don't want to be watching it. So I record it, and if they win, I watch it. If they lose, <laughs> before you ask your question, I'm just going to tell a little perceptual story. This is completely off the topic, but this is like it was a really interesting experience <laughs> the other day. Like I had recorded the game. And I, can't, I forget why I was out late, but I came back. And I didn't want to wa- sit there and watch the whole game, but I didn't want to miss any of it. So, because I thought, you know, because there's usually like something like, wow, you just didn't want to miss that. So I watched the first half in double time. And, you know, just, at first it's really weird, but then you get used to it. <laughs> so I got to the second half and I went, okay, let me put it on regular time. And I was like, oh, wait. It's running in slow motion. I was so used to watching it in double time that regular time looked like slow motion. I wonder if anybody's done any research on that. Okay, Forrest, top that. Well, speaking of research, um, you have these test subjects now. I'm thinking, um, you know, the way the brain works is it stops... If you try to focus on one subject, it will eventually move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering if if uh, we spoke to, spoke earlier from the first question about, um, about not thinking, not having an intention to think going in. But what if you actually did try to practice with meta or something and, and tried to notice when the when you just can't think about it anymore and that that is a passing thought which is uh you know part of our recovery when we do have you know an impulse to drink or use a drug that that uh that that feeling will eventually pass i don't quite understand what you're asking what i'm asking is would you try that with your students, and and then if you if you try that initially, then try to uh, tell me what that is again. Have a subject like meta, and, yeah, that and, you're you're focusing on right during meditation, and then noticing there's a point where you cannot when you get tired of doing it, and you move on. And you're just you know to be able to do some research on that and see when how long that takes. Um, and um, and and just to notice that you can't hold on to a thought. Yeah. There's something in a sutta about this, actually, where the Buddha talks about... It's in this same sutta, removing distracting thoughts. Um, and he talks about how even if you you know, focus on a positive thought, that after a while you just get tired of it. And you just want to let it go. And that's not answering your. I don't know if you were asking me a question, really, or expecting me to give an answer. And as soon as a thought arises, it's already passing. When you well, there is that, already, right? But like taking a certain question, um, you know, it's kind of one of the ways that koan works. I think in Zen. Where you take, uh, you know, a paradoxical question or an unanswerable question, like, uh, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping, and you keep thinking about it 
over and over until you can't stand it anymore and then you get enlightened or not. Does anybody else have a better answer for, for Forrest? Because I don't feel like I really got the... You're just going to have to do the research, Kevin. Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, I just want to thank you for emphasizing that whole thing about when we label things, how it creates a certain experience. Mm. Because I've really found that, worked with that a lot, especially on retreats, where I will have, um, I used to have these hot flashes and I hated it. Mm. You know, it was like, and I'd get really hot and I'd go, I don't like this, I don't like this. And then at some point it shifted to become, oh, here comes all this energy. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and also I think around pain too, that sense of, you know, you have, get some kind of pain in your back and, and you think you're going to die mm-hmm. and it, you know, you're pretty sure it means you have a tumor or something back there. But, you know, but, but then when you just kind of, when you just kind of stop that yeah. and you just kind of go with it and put some energy, it does amazing things like either the pain will go away mm-hmm. or it'll move someplace else, which is physiologically impossible. But it, it really gives you then that reinforcement that, oh, it is just these things happening. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really, I really appreciate being kind of reminded of that. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's, it's a big part of why we have suffering. Yeah. Yeah, and as soon as we decide something is something, we stop investigating it. Uh, So for some years, I noticed that, I would notice when I was driving out to Spirit Rock to teach, that I would start to get this melancholy. I'm riding out here to teach, and I would start to feel a little depressed. I think, it's weird, why am I getting depressed when I'm going to Spirit Rock to teach? I'm, you know, I love to teach, and I finally realized that, I mean, this isn't quite the same thing, but it's, it's similar. I think you'll see the similarity. I, started, I realized that I have this default emotion that I go to, and that actually I'm nervous. <laughs> but because that's not like really a big thing on my radar, that my mind, if I have an unpleasant feeling, I identify it as depression, even if it isn't even if it's anxiety. I was like, that's weird. It's like, how, it's like, just completely, because it's the feeling of sadness or melancholy, but it's not. So, it's like, even even my feeling is is deceiving me in some way. It's, It's just mysterious how the mind can do that. Um, still haven't figured that one out. Yeah. Um, Kevin, you mentioned uh, Rick Hansen's Buddha's brain, and it raised a question for me in, on the subject of control. And as it's always been, you know, both in the program and in this practice, it's always a hard thing to me to figure out kind of where that gray area is between what I'm supposed to be controlling and what I'm not supposed to be controlling. 
Um, one of the themes, as I understand it, of, of a lot of what Rick Hansen talks about is the idea of self-directed neuroplasticity, which is we really can control our sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous systems through these various kinds of things that we're doing. So there's things we can control about the, the you know, it's not in our conscious brain, but we can control, you know, the, the neurotransmitters and the hormones that we release through the various practices that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we can control that, but, but we can't control, you know, you know, the things that are happening to us that are generating that, or what triggers the, the, the release of the stress chemicals or whatever, that mm-hmm. happens to us. We get the fight or flight. Those are, they're like potentials right. that we can activate. So I, I guess I'd just be interested in your thoughts where is how do you draw? Where does it does it matter whether you draw the line? And if so, where you know, does it do you, matter what? Does it matter whether you kind of draw the line, or I control this, or I can't control this? And if so, how how to think about that? Because yeah. I get it's confusing confusing to me. Yeah, it's it's a good question because it, it. I mean, it's pointing obviously. You know, part of what you're talking about is right effort. And the quality of effort, and but you know, my my first thought is just about how many of the conditions I'm have to be in place. I mean, to say, oh yeah, we can do this in order to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, but all these conditions have to be in place for that for us to do that. So we, first of all, we have to remember, which is, that's the root of the word for sati, the word for mindfulness, is to remember. So most of the time we forget to be mindful. You know? So we have to remember to do it. But the, if, if there are other causes and conditions going on, like we're at work and the boss is yelling at us, things that like I'm not in control of that, so am am I really able to then, in the midst of all that, just remember and then intentionally relax some part of my body? You know, it's it's sort of like, like you know, there's so many causes and conditions going on that it's like. Uh, winds up to me being um, not that helpful to like try to get into thinking about um, results you know, and just really focus on process I mean that's really all we can hand, we can do and so I just so that comes down to you know my daily life the choices that I make. I mean, I, I feel, I know I'm kind of just, but, you know, what's the work that I do? What are my relationships like? All this stuff is part of that. It's not, meditation isn't happening in an isolated way from the rest of my life. So, it, 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 that's why the Eightfold Path is eightfold. And if you look at the Eightfold Path, each of those eight has a whole uh, branches that go off it all these things that are involved in it. So it's such a complex web that um, that it just, uh, it's really like, wow, if I can just remember to be a little mindful today, not hurt anybody, 
Um, try to think of one useful thing to do, you know, just and then let go. So I guess I don't have much hope <laughs> in, in no in you know in in making stuff happen. I I think it's it's like if you want if you really want like I mean when I like it's a beautiful book and I think that a lot of Dharma books kind of uh, set up these ideals that are not that achievable. They're more about a moment or an under an understanding than they are about like making things be a certain way and getting certain results. That uh, I'm not sure that I'm actually answering the question you're asking, but I'm out of time. So um, let's just close with a, a moment of releasing. May we bring love and kindness. May we bring our wisdom and our acceptance. May we weather the internal and external storms of this world with equanimity. May we be forces for good in this world. May all beings be free from suffering. Just before you go, I should um, report, I should have, um, let you know about things that are coming up. So every month besides this class, I teach in Berkeley on the fourth Tuesday. Uh, So that's the 24th of January at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. You can find my schedule on my website. The next big retreat I'm teaching is in June uh, in southern Washington, and there's a link to that on my website a five-day intensive meditation and qigong and recovery retreat. Um, Next month, I'm going to be teaching a day-long here called Living Kindness. Uh, And so uh, if you can come to that, please do. So there's a few things coming up. Uh, Be in touch with me if you like. You can email me through my website, kevingriffin.net kevingriffin.net just google me I'm right there the top (laughs) the best Kevin Griffin there's that guitar player for better than Ezra but anyway so drive carefully be safe
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.